0: This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do you have hope for the future of American politics? Is now the time for the pro-life movement to take a leading role in that future we're going to think about things like that on today's show, as I welcome Dr. Charlie Komosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. We've got a lot to talk about, which means I'll keep the intro brief. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today. Thanks for listening in. Charlie Komosi. welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be back.
0: So, Charlie, you shared a post on social media recently, which is kind of the reason I reached out to you right away. The post had to do with a discussion you were leading in a class you're currently teaching at Fordham. Basically, the class session, as I understand it, was on racism as a life issue. And what you said was that prior to that class, your students didn't seem to be able to imagine how a pro-life position could have anything to do with a concern for racial justice. In fact, I think you said it seemed as if students almost uniformly thought of the cries for racial justice as being on the opposite end of the spectrum from pro-life concerns. Can you just sort of break this down for us? Give us a little bit of insight into what was going on, what you heard, what you saw, what's going on here?
1: I can. Uh, it is a little bit painful to go through, but I think it's important maybe to go through. So I totally revamped my faith and critical reason syllabus. The freshman class, every, every freshman has to take a Fordham As I was thinking about it, I I revamped it this summer, and it was the pandemic, it was a racial justice moment, and I thought, you know, I'm going to have a section on racial justice in the uh, syllabus, but I want to transition from that section to a kind of bioethics section, you know, just hit, you know, little little bits and pieces of both. Then Carter Sneed at at Notre Dame put together this amazing panel at his Ethics Center on racial justice as a pro-life issue, racism as a pro-life issue, and I thought, my gosh, this is perfect. It'll be a Wonderful transition from the racial justice section to the bioethics section. Um, I'll look at pro-life feminism right after it. It'll, the synergy will be amazing.
0: We'll just sort of move along, right? Like, you'll yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. In fact, Gloria Purvis, who's quickly becoming one of my heroes. Yeah is in both. So she's on that panel. And then I had her read, I had my students read her open letter to AOC about pro-life feminism, which Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. Or at least in my mind, it was beautiful, Mm -hmm. but I was just so struck by how, even after listening to that panel, even after engaging With another article, I had them read. They just couldn't make the connection. There was something stopping them. Like even when you lay it out and say, "Okay, pro-lifers tend to think of concern for the vulnerable, concern for violence, concern for those who have trouble speaking up in the culture, giving a voice to people who have trouble speaking up in the culture." Even if it's not a perfect analogy, most people can at least say, "Well, I kind of disagree with pro-lifers about that. I don't think it's exactly right, but I can at least see it. I can at least." see how it looked. And it's not clear that this is true for all of my students, but a good chunk of them, even after being confronted with African-American pro-life activists making this point, were just unable to see it. In fact, a few, quite brazenly in my view, said, well, they can say they're for those other things, but they really can't be for those other things if they identify as pro-life. Wow. And, and at that point, I was just kind of like, well, I mean, there, this this really isn't about arguments or evidence at this point. It's really about something much bigger.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way you put that there at the end, that at least some of the students are saying, well, they can't actually believe that. It seems to me like the categories are stronger than the testimonies there, right? Like here you have people actually testifying to what they believe and giving an account of, as they would put it, the coherence of their belief. But the categories with which your students, your students aren't outliers here, they're probably mirrors of a a larger sort of understanding or bias. The categories kind of Disallow for that coherent witness to stand. Like it can't actually be that. Right.
1: I think that's right. And, and when we, I mean, some people use the term identity politics in too dismissive a way, but I think here it might be right to invoke. I think the identity politics are so strong that the strength and vigor and an emotional weight that accompany those are such, especially maybe at our current moment where they have a narrative about who is the enemy of racial justice and who are the people who are not supportive of racial justice. Those happen to be the same people, in, again, in their minds, maybe with some reality, maybe not. Right? Tend, they at least think of as pro-lifers. And when you set up the boundaries this way, when you set up the battle lines this way, when you set up I, your very identity this way in many cases, certainly as activists, they've, many of them have set up their identity this way even direct evidence, again, of African-American activists saying this is what I stand for and why I was not able to overcome.
0: It. Hmm. So, I mean, as, as I was just saying, I think it's easy. I, you're not doing this and I don't want to do this, but it would be easy for somebody to kind of listen in or to think about a, a group like this and say, well, it's just these students or gosh, it's just, you know, 19 year olds like they haven't formed a, a broader view. But it strikes me and I don't know how you feel about this, that You know, like I said earlier, this is kind of a mirror of maybe a broader societal opinion, Um, these sort of whether it's categories or biases or whatever, and the pigeonholing of the pro-life position that it means this and therefore the other things don't go along with it. Racial justice is outside of that. Where do you see, because I know you, you know, you track a lot of these influences and the political trends and kind of the public opinion and where it's going, like, where do you see the most prominent influences over this kind of view and this kind of categorization of people into these political tribes or camps?
1: Yeah, I, I do pay maybe more than the usual amount of attention to to that question. But I must say, I don't have an answer totally fully formed in my head. I, I will say, I do think what I mean, I I mentioned identity politics before. I think that might be part of it. I do think our discourse as it exists, especially on college campuses and increasingly high school maybe about racial justice pushes these categories onto students in ways that they haven't really thought critically about them. I don't, I've talked with friends of mine, maybe you have something to say about this as well, who are teaching, who have taught freshmen over the last several years. And we tend to get similar, though not identical experiences of, well, you know, my freshmen seven or eight years ago, they didn't really agree with me necessarily, but they were they were open-minded. They were willing to engage. They wanted to engage. Mm. Now there seems to be, at least in my experience, experience of other people I've talked to, a sense that maybe the freshmen aren't very interested in engaging. They aren't as interested in actually diving down deep into the evidence and arguments and taking on counter points of view and engaging with those who think differently in the spirit of plurality and diversity. Instead, it seems as if they seem more dominated. And again, this is not all, but a good chunk, more dominated by their views to be activists. And so to the extent that they've been trained in high school and in college or university level to be activists, maybe that's part of what's going on here. Because if, if there's a more complicated narrative, a more complicated view of what's happening, more complicated set of data to engage, then maybe the activism is not as strong, which if, if activism is where you start, you can understand why there might be some hesitancy there. I don't know. That's just the best I can come up with right now.
0: Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. My guest is Dr. Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. We're discussing American politics as well as the state and future of the pro-life movement, starting with some stories about the students he teaches at Fordham. So Charlie, what you were just saying about kind of freshmen in college and maybe not being interested in diving deep, maybe this is backing up into high school that the sort of drive to be activist is stronger than the desire to kind of grow and face new opinions and enrich your own thought to get to the bottom of things. That also seems like it's a fair way to describe kind of the American public especially now I guess we're after, we're post election we may uh, that's i guess a disputed term at this point <laughs> but after the 2020 election let's just put that in square in scare quotes the American public like we seem to be generally speaking in that same kind of position to kind of recoil into mm. camps of identity That have incredible suspicion, if not outright animosity for those who don't identify in the same way with the same positions and opinions that we do. So after an election like 2020 and everything that built up to it, is there hope for our politics and where might we find that hope? And I'm asking you that question because I know you're speaking in a webinar even later today on this topic. So this is a chance to kind of get some of your thoughts out there before you, you're recorded elsewhere.
1: So I apologize for the, for the dry run here. But, um, <laughs> so I, I mean, maybe like you and some others, uh, quite a few others, I, w- I was and remain nervous about the 2020 election and its aftermath, at least in the short term. But I have to say that my main concerns going in, which were strongly related to what we just talked about, actually, mm-hmm. which is are we just so activated that that we can't really listen to each other? We're not able to listen to each other. We're not able to process data that doesn't fit our activist narrative. That is that and that that still remains. But I but I do have to say that the exit poll data and the data from Certain precincts, important precincts, especially precincts dominated by people of color, especially Latinos, tell a much more complicated story than the one that we were all kind of buffeted with as we went into 2020. Hmm. And that story is one in which apparently in many places, people of color either voted for Trump at the same way they did in 2016, or especially in the case of Latinos voted for him at higher rates than Hmm. they did in in 2016. According to exit polls, and again, we need to really maybe process this data a little more, but from what I saw in the New York Times, the number of LGBTQ plus people who voted for Donald Trump compared to 2016 doubled in in 2020. White folks, especially privileged white folks, went to Biden much more than they did in 2016 and probably was the reason for his his victory, his apparent victory. So this is, in my view, the kind of data that can change narratives, that can make things more complicated, that can sort of stop the putting of people into buckets. I talk about throwaway culture a lot, as you know. I think what Mm -hmm. we often do is just use people and by putting them into buckets for our political agendas instead of looking at them in the particularity of who they are as individuals. And that has been going on for some time now. It's not news to probably anybody listening to this podcast, but it's been unclear how to get out of this mess. And maybe if if these exit polls are anywhere close to right, and if the data from the precincts coming in is sound, maybe this will be enough for people to look at and say, well, the, the narratives that we've had about putting people into buckets and having these buckets assign particular political viewpoints that can then be marshaled and utilized in a culture war, political war, or both that, that needs to go away. We need to do a, we need to throw that whole project away and we need to re-engage with a culture of encounter and hospitality that respects the particularity of each and every individual without dismissing them or putting them in certain kinds of buckets based on these demographic factors.
0: That's really interesting. You know, I was just, um, earlier this week, maybe it was last week, listening to a podcast, an episode of, I think it was This American Life, maybe it was Radio Lab, but they were basically tracing back kind of the emergence of identifying blocks of voters. And then it really got down to slices of voters because you don't have blocks. It's kind of like micro analysis of certain groups that you can try and sway this way or that way. And it went back to, I think it was Clinton's second campaign, Bill Clinton's second campaign. And the identification of soccer moms, like who fit a certain kind of profile, they had a certain socioeconomic status, they were mostly white, they had a certain constellation of concerns, and Clinton's victory was sort of attributed to swaying those potential voters his way. They were kind of updating that now and how it's become, you know, especially political operatives have become sort of hyper focused on this. And they talked about, what was it, Trader Joe Republicans. So Republicans who have certain characteristics that you would usually identify with liberals, including that they shop at Trader Joe's. And then what was what else was there? There was the Patel Motel cartel. So I don't know. I think this is right. 50 percent of motels owned in the United States are owned by Indian born or Indian immigrants. Right. And 70 percent of those have the last name Patel, which was astounding to me in any event. Like they had them as a block. And like, how do you sway? But what they were finding and actually interviewing these people in the more modern situation, not back in Clinton's time, but now is precisely what you're saying. Like they they aren't a monolith. Right. Like they don't just have one set of views and therefore this outcome in a in a vote. Guess what? They're complex, nuanced people who have a variety of different concerns and make decisions not necessarily in a predictable way. So, you know, what you're what you're talking about here makes me think about the kind of disservice we do by naming and sort of pasting these labels on blocks of people, even to talk about the black vote, the Latino vote. We haven't even talked about the Catholic vote, if there is such a thing as that. And right, we're exactly. trying to talk about blocks. So what do you think, like, how do we... I mean, maybe it's in our political discourse and it comes from political operatives, but how do we stop thinking in those terms? Is this, does it mean that we have to stop polling? Maybe we should. Or do we have to go about our politics in a different kind of way?
1: Pope Francis calls us to face-to-face encounter. I know this maybe sounds a little bit strange in our current pandemic moment, mm. but... <laughs> Face-to-face encounters with others, with their physical presence, which challenges us, with their pain and their pleas and their joy, which infects us in our close and continuous interaction. Now, that is the, whatever that is, and that's beautiful, that's the opposite of the kind of problem that you and I are pointing to right now, right? The kind of methodology that's used. We just, as you've mentioned, we just call it the Latino vote and we move on. Or we say, we're going to go after the Latino vote next time or, you know, whatever it is. But, but again, if we can have this culture that what Pope Francis talks about as a culture of encounter and hospitality, and maybe even uh, can we dare dream of a politics of encounter and hospitality, mm. where instead of defining ourselves by opposition to the other as our primary political identity, which I think is probably what happened in a very great number of cases in 2020, few people I think were excited about their candidate versus voting against the other candidate and engage those who we perceive to be different from us and recognize them as being fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow, fellow sharers in the divine image and likeness then that is something that would push back against i mean i i really i just was watching cable news today god forbid and somebody was (laughs) suggesting that that maybe we should get rid of polling right like the polling is just so bad and it creates so many false expectations and it's such an imprecise science as has been revealed by the last two elections so i i actually think there's something to that like let's stop the pseudoscience and instead engage People in the fullness of who they are. And and we you you've been mentioning about the pro-life movement. I, I think this is a just a tremendous opportunity for the pro-life movement to, to say we don't need to be bound by the kinds of expectations that my freshmen have of us. I mean, it, it means that there's a lot of work to do, but it also means if we can move in this direction, there's hope for for that specific type of work.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. My guest is Dr. Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. He and I are discussing American politics as well as the state and future of the pro-life movement. So on that last part, the future of the pro-life movement, you just sort of touched on this. This is a, a sort of an opportune time. For the pro-life movement to perhaps present a new way, to build a new kind of solidarity, to bring people together in a manner in which really our political identities don't seem capable of doing anymore. How do you see the pro-life movement, maybe beginning with Catholics or not exclusively with Catholics, presenting us with a new way forward for American civic life?
1: It's almost a cliche now to say that Catholics, especially pro-life Catholics, faithful pro-life Catholics are politically homeless and we don't belong in either party. And it's almost been said so many times now, it's you know, it kind of gets old. But mm-hmm. one of the things, again, that makes me hopeful about our current moment is the there was already a political reset underway. One of I, I'm not a Trump fan, but one of the things that was good about his coming to power is it really did blow up our kind of... Left-right dichotomous imagination when it comes to our politics, and just in general, kind of blew up our expectations. Like, well, there's something new, there's something different going on here. It's not quite what it is. And lots of talking heads and and people spilling ink have, have given their thoughts about this. But there does seem to be a kind of major realignment go underway. And some people talk about it, populist versus elitist. Or like globalist versus localist, or something. And it's not we 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 tend to like even uh, when there's a new opportunity to envision that we still go back to the dichotomy for some reason. But at any rate, there's something new going on here. And one of the things that this election seems to have bolstered is a, an idea that there is something new specifically on the Republican on the side of the Republican Party. So I am not a supporter of the Republican Party. I'm not a supporter of the Democratic Party. I, I voted for American Solidarity Party. I continue to support them. But one hopeful thing, especially as a supporter of the American Solidarity Party, I found after the election was to see so many Republicans, after again seeing the exit polling and the precinct results, saying, well, gee, maybe we are the party of a kind of multiracial, labor-centered, populist approach. The Republicans, you're saying this is the many Republicans.
0: Republicans were saying this, right?
1: Well, yeah. I don't know about many, but some were. Some so were like, okay, so like J- Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Marco Rubio in particular mm. were, were offering this kind of analysis, and and some were making fun of it because the numbers still aren't very great for Republicans, but they were much better than expected, right? And whatever Trump is, and I'm not sure Trump knows who Trump is politically, it, it seems to be pushing the Republican Party away from the the old coalition of neoconservative kind of warmongers and libertarian government's dead of my life, folks, and conservative, for lack of a better way of it, conservative traditional Christians, pro-life Christians, pro-family Christians. That is gone, as far as I can tell, that very strange coalition of people. What will replace it is not clear, but if if this is anything close to right, maybe something that could replace it would be, again, a kind of multiracial labor-centered, faith-centered, family-centered party that that it looks quite different from the old Republican Party. The point is, it's not even clear why we even use the name Republican Party to describe both things. But and that's how we've rolled for the last, I don't know, 150 years, I guess. We don't call ourselves new parties. We just have new parties with the same name. But <laughs> at any rate, that would be new. That would be exciting. That would be hopeful. And that would be a time that would be an important moment for pro-lifers to say, we no longer have to choose between, you know, one way of putting it is the supply side of abortion versus the demand side of abortion. Right. Mm -hmm. So we focus more on the demand side of abortion, trying to limit or the supply side focused on uh, laws and restrictions. And that's good. And that's essential. And that's so important. But because we've been in this tension with especially libertarian, small government, Republicans in our coalition, we've we've tend to shy away shy away from the um, demand side, and this it seems to me, especially if if we can have this be a multiracial approach, this is one. Frankly, the data seems to show that African Americans, Latinos, though agreeing with many pro-lifers on abortion proposals and policies, have been loath to to really be a part of it, or at least hesitant, precisely because we haven't focused as much on the demand side, on supporting women and supporting families. And if this realignment is real, if there's something like what Holly and Rubio are talking about is real, then my gosh, this is like an unbelievable moment for pro-lifers to take advantage of in service of a a full approach to pro-life activist approach.
0: What kind of leader could you imagine would be able to kind of spearhead that new kind of coalition to actually take it from trends and sort of whispers of possibilities and make it into an actual political vision. What kind of leader do you think that would take?
1: I think it would take at least at first, probably a Democrat from the South hmm. who is, is, is a Democrat through and through, or at least what we used to think of as a Democrat through and through as those kind of instincts about the role of government in injustice and supporting vulnerable people. But it was attuned to religious faith and And also pro-life. So the two people, as you asked the question, who immediately jumped to mind uh, are state Senator Katrina Jackson of Louisiana, Mm -hmm. who actually, I think, was one of the primary authors of recent legislation there amending Louisiana's constitution to give legal protection for prenatal children underneath Louisiana's constitution, but who also voted to expand Medicaid in in their state and who is a Democrat, you know, at least an old school Democrat on, on those traditional issues. And also her partner in crime, John Bell Edwards, the Democratic governor of Louisiana, who supports, again, both supply and demand approaches to, to addressing abortion and a host of other issues. And so I wonder, you know, those aren't Republicans, but those are the kind of folks, I think, who could say, here's what this looks like in a certain way, or here's the kind of thing that shows that it's possible like i they here here are two democrats who are succeeding in a bright bright red state like louisiana and if they can do that there then then this then this can be replic- replicated it just seems so counterintuitive given the cultural and political imagination created in the early 80s but but as my students like to remind me the early 80s was a very very long time ago and uh, <laughs> which is hard to hear yeah my
0: students made me feel that yes (laughs) i shared a photo with them of myself in the early 80s this semester just so i could prove to them that i was there and they saw it i was there
1: (laughs) yeah i I actually showed them the the clips from bush v gore to try to get them ready for a while coming this time around and i go to the history channel to show it i'm like oh my
0: god it just looks so old yeah no it looks so old yeah. But uh, to your point, like the seeds of these kind of identities were planted there and became and really took root. I mean, very strongly. So it's hard to kind of be wrestled loose from that. So to your point, well, as there. I
1: tell my students, like are, uh, this, this was a long time ago. So yeah. why are you accepting whatever my parents decided in the early eighties is the way to start thinking about this, you know, and, and there is, that does actually give me some hope. It, Uh, that that this generation can say, I I don't think we need to accept whatever they decided the coalitions were in 1981.
0: Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, Charlie. Just one last thought I have, and I'd love your thought on this quickly. It might be a bigger thing and we'd have to talk about it at another time, but we started off talking about your students who are more interested, it seems, in the activism side, or probably have a, a deep interest in racial justice, but we're suspicious perhaps of the pro-life movement because don't see it as being capacious to those concerns. So to build a new coalition means to kind of draw people like that in to a pro-life position that is hospitable to the racial justice. But I wonder on the other side, there's many of us Catholics who might be fearful about not voting, let's say, for a Republican right? Because of the way in which the party platform lines up with the defense of the unborn and curtailing the rights to abortion. So if we're asking for some kind of courageous movement from the one side, maybe from younger people who have the activist interest, what's the corresponding move or how do we sort of think about Catholics who are fearful of leaving the old Republican platform?
1: No, that's an excellent question. And I I think there is a responsibility on the part of of the groups that are folks you just mentioned. And and maybe the way to articulate it is this. The Republican Party, I don't need to tell you, has taken pro-lifers for granted for so long and has pulled the football away from us so many times that even if there wasn't a a, a realignment underway, a chance to rethink the party underway. We should have been, in my view, very skeptical of aligning too strongly with that party. But now, if given that we are in the midst of this radical realignment, or at least very strong realignment, given that it is, this is a moment for creativity and rethinking, we have to let our Republican friends know that they can't, it isn't business as usual. You, you either have to support life in a multiplicity of ways, the ways we want, or we're not going to continue to vote for you at all. I mean, one one striking thing I found was that even after the Trump administration, there have been some victories. Planned Parenthood still has just as much money, if not more, as they did before mm. Trump was president. Mm. There, there's an opportunity here to move the party, to move in general, but they can't take us for granted. So that's actually one reason why I think it's important to take groups like the american solidarity party seriously and say listen you can't we are not fundamentally republicans that's not where our identity is fundamentally i hope most of us are christians and the gospel is where we're at if if we have a transactional you know relationship with you but if the transaction ain't working or if we can do better somewhere else then that's where we'll go Mm. that's that's my view anyway and we're all again we're already seeing this in in very influential senators like like rubio and holly and and so i think there is a hope to do things differently
0: I've been talking with Charlie Camosi. Be sure to check out his books, including the award-winning Resisting Throwaway Culture, published by New City Press, and his forthcoming book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, also under contract with New City Press. Charlie, thanks so much for spending the time in this conversation today. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
1: What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative— Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.